Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host. Before we get into the show proper, and we could be here for a while. I mean, by the time you're listening to this, you know the runtime of the show, so you'll know if I'm lying or not. But there's a lot to, there's a lot to get into tonight. Uh, UFC 275 was last night, and light on star power. I didn't talk about this a lot when I previewed the card, but not a lot of you know traditional pay-per-view draws to be found there. But pretty big on action, uh, as I, I think a lot of us kind of anticipated. A little bit top-heavy in the sense that, you know, those last three fights were probably the most relevant, but there were... I'm not saying everything was great. But this was a... This was worth your money, I think. Jeez, uh, the main event alone. To say nothing of some of the other stuff that took place on that main card, but... We will get into all the details here. Uh, we also have to preview UFC on ESPN 37 next week. The UFC is in Austin, Texas. And as noted, these anytime they have these fight night cards that they have to actually sell people on, they put effort in and we get a pretty decent card on paper. Versus the Apex stuff, which is... Whatever it is. But it just kind of exists. Alright. So we have all of that to get to. Before we get into it, please like, comment, subscribe... Share, star, sharing is really the most important. Star rating, written review, if that's at all applicable. But letting other people know about the show, that that helps a lot. Uh, more than just about anything else you could do, actually. Uh, assuming you've done everything else that I already mentioned. Uh, sharing on any social media platform that you happen to be affiliated with in any way. Or just telling, you know, telling friends, family, if they're interested in the sport, if you think they'd enjoy the show, please point them in my direction. That all means a great deal, so thank you very, very much. All right, that's going to be a long one, folks. Not really any two ways about it. UFC 275 last night, the main event. Yuri Prohachka defeats Glover Teixeira to become the new UFC light heavyweight champion via rear naked choke at 432 of the fifth round. I said, I think, last week that this was a close fight. I favored Prohachka. Played out. Uh, but <laughs> I think I said the only thing that would really, really surprise me is if Prohachka was able to submit to Shara. Well, lo and behold, uh, here we are. This fight was nuts. Uh... I think for purely entertainment value, this is the most entertaining light heavyweight title fight in UFC history. This fight was wild. There were momentum swings. Like, pro wrestlers could not lay out a better match than this. Uh, and I, I mean that as a compliment to the fight. And maybe something of an indictment on contemporary professional wrestling? Uh, maybe. That's another topic. But, in the beginning, Yeri was doing a lot of his, uh, a lot of movement. Stance switching, sniping from long range. Good takedown defense. Uh, so, Teixeira, anytime uh, Yuri would kind of go opposite stance, Teixeira would grab at a single leg, which is kind of what you're supposed to do. 
he didn't have a lot of success in the first attempt or so, I think, but when he saw how Prohoshka was defending, he switched tactics. Instead of going to try and run the pipe, which had mixed results at best for him, he started treetopping Prohoshka because Prohoshka would... Uh, he'd try, he started limp-legging later, but initially it was a little bit trying to just kind of Granby roll through it. Uh, and by elevating that leg as much as he did, uh, Teixeira was then able to sweep out the back leg and get on top. Uh, it's a really nice t- takedown technique. There's certainly ways to defend it, but get, you can't defend everything at once. Defending in a certain way opens up other opportunities. This is true in every striking discipline. It's true in every grappling discipline. And it's certainly true about what takedowns you can choose to employ. I was more or less correct about Teixeira's top control being a real problem. Now, Prohachka was a lot better off of his back here than he was in the Reyes fight. I think if he had tried... I think if he had fought the way that he did on the ground... uh, here that he did against Reyes, he would have been in a lot more trouble. And he was in trouble here at various points. These two guys were passing. There were sweeps. There were so many sweeps. Uh, There were like seven, I think, six or seven positional reverses over the course of this fight uh, between both men, which is a pretty high number when you consider how hard some of those are to actually pull off. Let me find the stats real quick. This fight was was just bonkers. Uh... Uh, that. Yeah, we had four reversals from Prohaska and two from Teixeira over the course of the fight. Um, yeah, Teixeira's takedown accuracy was not great. If we're talking percentages, he was he only had 29% accuracy. But when you look at the raw numbers, that tends to sway a little bit more in his favor. He was 5 of 17. Uh, and 17 is a very high attempt rate. But five takedowns over the course of five rounds is, especially at light heavyweight, that's not actually all that bad. Uh, some of what they counted as takedown attempts were, not sure I would agree, but you, you can't really categorize them as clinch entries either. because it, It's one of those areas where categorizing things for statistical analysis is going to give you a slightly different view than actually watching the fight. But he was trying to grapple a lot, uh, Teixeira was. Uh, Prochkagan had some really nice escapes off of his back, not trying to muscle his way through. He's really good, Prochka is. Uh, and he deserves a lot of credit for this. I mentioned in the preview that Teixeira's top control is just crushing. And you saw that here. He got... Um, Teixeira had a total of 9 minutes and 47 seconds of control time. Uh, you notch you around 10 minutes in a 25-minute fight, and this thing went... 2430-something. Like, we're pretty much talking about a full fight. That's a, lo- that's a fair bit. Uh, again, you're, you're a little bit less than half. And he had back control at various points. He had mount, and you could see how good his top pressure is. What Prohachka did well, and what a lot of people... If you're going to take something from Prohachka on the mat and try to, like, emulate it, there's some stuff you probably shouldn't try to emulate. Because... This fight was a little bit sloppy. Um, I mean, for understandable reasons. Not everything is textbook all the way through. In fact, almost no fights are. But what Prohachka is good about is when he starts moving, he's good about taking the next step. You see this a lot with fighters, especially when they get fatigued. Um, they 
they try to muscle through positions to just explode uh, to achieve an escape. And the problem is they tend not to take the second step. Just by way of example, if someone... There's a lot of ways to escape from side control, but one of the ones that uh, Prochka used here, and so I'll use it as an example, because other people try to do this too. If I need to get out from under on side control, if I can get both of my arms uh, under the body of my opponent... So, again, kind of like... Imagine you're laying down, you'd be doing like bicep curls. Like you get your arms in that position. You can then plant your feet, buck your hips up, and use your arms to help complete the motion to get the guy on top of you, get his weight off of you for a little bit. The problem a lot of guys have, uh, fighters in general, this is non gender specific. If I default to guys, it's intended to be gender neutral. Uh, the problem, because women have this problem too. There's some problems across that are more exclusive to women's MMA than men's MMA, and vice versa, but. Uh, so for the purposes of this, th this is a problem that both of them, uh, that a lot of people have. And people have in the UFC. It's not also like a, you know, a new fighter that struggles with this thing. They try to explode, and the thought is, if I bridge and I go hard enough, I can throw them all the way off of my body and I can stand up. That's fine when you're at 100%. You might be able to do it. When you get tired, or when the other guy on top knows what he's doing, you're not going to do the textbook version of what's supposed to happen you're going to get a couple of inches of space to move and not for very long so you better capitalize on it and i want to give perhachka credit for this anytime he had to get out from under Tashera, once he got things going he did, he never assumed that what he did was going to work and in and of itself like i'm going to do this step and this one thing is all I have to do, and I'm great. No. He would do something that would induce the necessary movement, and then he would keep going. And that's... said, so there's a lot of fighters who struggle with that. So, a lot in the UFC. And to see him have that insight, you know, that, that worked really well. Um, for Teixeira's part, again, some really good grappling. Uh, Prochka in a couple of places got... Uh, when they would scramble, uh, uh, Proshka would come up on kind of a front headlock, and there were some really nice, uh, like, arm drags into peekouts that Teixeira hit to then spin around towards the ride position and whatnot. Some really good stuff from him there. Um, on the feet, um, I mentioned this in my preview. I wasn't sure that Teixeira could deal with the damage that Prochka was going to put on him. Um, I think that... I I'm... I absolutely believe that that was part of why Glover Teixeira broke down the way he did towards the end. Um, I mean, he mentioned, you know, a little bit of a tough weight cut and then some nasty body work from Prochka that sucked the uh, that sucked the wind out of him. So, I mean, look, tough weight cuts happen. Uh, I'm sure Teixeira's had tough weight cuts before. If he keeps fighting, and he seems to indicate that he will, he'll have tough weight cuts in the future. It happens to everybody. Uh Prochka's body work was a pretty serious contributor. He he didn't go to it. Um, it, it wasn't a big portion of his game. In fact, dude, these two guys, man, 88% of their strikes, both of them, 88% of their strikes went to the head. Uh, they're both credited with about 10% body work. There was a sequence in, I think it was the third round, 
where Prohachka got Teixeira against the fence, and he unloaded some body shots there, like three of them. In a, he, he got him back to the fence kind of with body work, and then he landed like three or four just haymakers to the ribs. And you could see Teixeira after that, like he did not enjoy that. Credit to him for gutting through it for as long as he did. Uh, you know, other people might have folded. I mean, heaven knows I would have. Uh, he, but but that's why you go to the body. You go to the body because it pays dividends later. And if you've got enough rounds, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to it in the first round right away. Now, if you got a three-round fight, you better. And especially if we're talking MMA. Like if you got three rounds, you don't have time to dilly-dally. If you've got five and you start going a little bit in the second and then make a more concerted effort in the third, you can start seeing the results of that start to pay off before the end of the fight. But if you wait till, like, if you're in a three-round fight and you wait till the third round to start going to the body, uh, you you can be too far behind the eight ball. Then you can still, I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying abandon body work in the third round. But if you start going to the body in the third, it has to be a bit more designed to set up something to the head. Or you better just have sick power. Because working to the body takes a bit of time. Unless you catch someone just right, which you can. But it, you tend to have to soften that up a little bit. A little bit like leg kicks. It's rare that you see someone stopped with two leg kicks. you you got to tenderize that a little bit. You wear it down. And body work is kind of the same way. But that absolutely paid dividends uh, for Prohachka. Uh First round was crazy. The first round ended. Uh, Teixeira got on top. Uh, and he landed a nasty elbow. There was a pretty big cut over... Would have been Prohachka's left eyebrow. Um... But can I just very briefly, because this is going to come up again when I talk about the co-main event. I don't know who the fight doctors were for this event, but shame on them. Uh, just did not do a good job. I'm not saying this, let me be abundantly clear. I am not saying this fight should have been stopped because of the cut on Yuri Prohachka. It was not in the worst possible spot. It stopped bleeding. Like when it first got cut, anytime you first get cut, that's when the bleeding is the worst. But it, his cut team got it under control in terms of blood loss and, and blood leakage. And like I said, it wasn't in the worst spot in the world. So I'm not saying the fight should have been stopped because of it, but I don't think the doctor did necessarily their due diligence when they examined it. Um, we had... Uh, so, second round. Second round's a bit of a toss-up. I think I, I recall giving it to Perhachka. But I'm gonna give it to Santos. I forget. Uh, or to share rather, not Santos. Talk about Santos in a minute. I'm thinking about close rounds, so my mind immediately went to the co-main event. But second round was close. Uh, Could have given it to Glover. I think two of the judges did. Uh, third round was a big one for Prohaska. That was when we got to the last 30 to 40 seconds of that round. I was thinking 10-8 Prohaska. He hurt Teixeira on the feet more than once, uh, got on top and unloaded at various points in time, and then at the very end, Teixeira is able to kind of fight off of the fence. He's just sitting against the fence, kind of. He's able to fight up, take uh, Teixeira, uh, Prochka down, and he sp- th- if you need to try and get back uh, a bit of a round at the end, 
you have to watch what Teixeira does in those last, like, 30 seconds of the third round. Because he saved himself on my card and on most cards, not one of the judges. But he saved himself from a 10-8 in that round. Uh, that said, one of the judges did give it to Prochka 10-8, and I can see it. I really can. I didn't, but I don't think that's egregious. Uh, fourth round. Uh, how the fourth round go? This whole fight runs together because it is non-stop insanity. Uh, the long and the short of it is I had the fight even going into the f going into the fifth. Uh, two of the judges had it three to one for Glover, which is a perfectly fine scorecard. Uh, I don't think that's wrong at all. One judge had given Prohachka a 10-8 third, which again, I can understand. Uh, and he just needs a finish, probably. And they went out... Uh, Prohachka, man, he came out in that fifth and felt like he... like He fought the fifth the way he'd been fighting a lot of the fight, but the fifth round was... This is how far around the bend we came on this fight, and I mean that in a good way. We got to the opposite of how we started. We started with Prohachka doing good work on the feet, kind of... Uh, so after the third round, I meant to mention this. Um, Teixeira was really busted up at the end of the third round. He had a cut around, I think, just under his left eye. Not a bad one, but a cut. And then in the third or the fourth, uh, he had this giant cut... I mean, Giants a bit of it, long. It was a very long cut that ran kind of diagonally along the bridge of his nose. Uh, so he was badly busted up. These two guys just took giant chunks out of each other for the entire duration of this fight. But we get to the fifth round. And, we again, we've come all the way around the bend here because Teixeira starts winning on the feet. He starts landing his right hand. One of the knocks on Teixeira is, uh, relates to his punching offense. I think Jack Slack noted this years ago, like when he fought Ryan Bader long ago. Teixeira doesn't have a lot of variety in his striking. Uh, he tends to throw a right a right straight and then a left hook. It's 2-3. And it's 2-3 and it's 2-3 and it's 2-3. And he just kind of spams those same... Now, he does add a bit of variety in different at different times. He, he throws uppercuts on occasion. Uh... But the vast majority of his punches are those two in that order. And he finally started finding the right hand. Uh, and it, he hurt. To, I mean, he hurt Prochka. They visibly had him wobbled. Gets him going against the fence. They kind of tie up, and Teixeira jumps for a guillotine choke, and, it, and Prochka's head slips out. Uh, uh, so Prochka lands on top. He gets to work from top position. The end of this is 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 pretty crazy. Like uh, Teixeira, I think he sweeps Prochka. He gets full mount. Like this is one of the craziest things about this fight. Uh, somebody posted the the image at uh, like three minutes and twenty seconds. So three minutes and twenty seconds into the final round. Teixeira has mounted Yuri Prochka and is dropping bombs. And about a minute later, he's uh, Prochka wins. It's it's kind of crazy. Uh, it's not it's not exactly. I mean, it's like 47 seconds, I think. I forget the exact math. 
But yeah, he, he gets mount again, and Prohachka moves things around so he can get his feet on the fence to kind of explode off with it. Does so, comes out the back door, gets to the ride position. Uh, Glover tries to roll through for a leg. Prohachka is able to read that, kind of steps over, keeps the ride. But as he does so, one of his arms gets around or very near the neck of Teixeira. Teixeira doesn't seem to recognize it. Now, we're talking the fifth round of a brutal war. I am not I'm not knocking the guy at all. Uh, but he doesn't quite seem to recognize the danger his neck is in, or maybe he just thinks the position is different than it is. Any number, again, there's any number of things, and I would not, I'm not casting blame anywhere. But he doesn't seem to recognize it. And Prohachka does recognize the position. So he grabs a rear naked choke because his arm is all the way there. So he punches a little bit further through, grabs the rear naked choke, arm lock. No ho- no hooks. And he doesn't quite get to bulldog choke position because that's an arm position thing as much as a body position. Uh, but he rides it a little bit. This was like... Um, Kao Luno used to hit this on occasion. Uh, from way back in the day. So if you want to see another example of it, the, the no-hooks rear-naked choke. He was a little bit more off to the side than Pena was when she fought Nunez, but he gets that, and Teixeira tries to fight out of it. But he can't, and he has to tap out. Uh, again, this was an amazing, amazing fight. I don't know if this is the best light heavyweight title fight in UFC history. I still tend to think that's the first Jones and Gustafson fight. Uh, but that's largely going to come down to personal preference as far as what you're after. I think Jones and Gustafson was a more interesting affair in terms of technique displayed by both men. It was a big, big coming out party for Gustafson. It was the first time we'd ever, first time in years we'd seen John pushed. I don't think that fight, that fight is not as competitive as this one. There were a lot of people at the time who thought Gustafson should have won that fight. I've never seen it. I have never seen that fight for Gustafson. Doing it live, I was 4-1 to one for Jones, which I don't necessarily stand by on rewatch, but I always score that fight for John. Uh, in a similar back-and-forth fashion, maybe Gustafson and Cormier is similar, which I thought Gustafson won, for the record. Uh, but if you're looking for... Uh, that, what I'm about to say is not to diminish what these two gentlemen did. If you're looking for better technique, I think you'll get more out of those two fights than you will this one. This one is was much more action-packed than those two. Not to say those two were boring, but this one, this one was at a bonkers pace. And I think this one is more entertaining. Now, that's a subjective term, but I think it probably holds up as a general rule to say this was a more... This was the more entertaining fight of the two. Of the three kind of... Those are kind of the three that sit at the top of the light heavy, best light heavyweight title fights ever. Uh, because those three, I think, are far and away above whatever other ones you might enter into that conversation. I don't know, what else would you put there? Um, as far as best. Uh, maybe... You kind of have to take the Liddell and Couture fights as a trilogy rather than as individual fights, because I don't think individually any of them are that great. They're not bad. But they're not necessarily great fights. Wouldn't necessarily put Tito Ortiz's. Um, any other ones from John? No. Um, 
Maybe Jones and Reyes. Maybe. That might be a bit of a reach. Um, I am from Cormier. Uh, Quentin Rampage Jackson and Dan Henderson actually had a pretty good fight. Uh, n not on the level of these ones, but if I'm trying to kind of think of other great light heavyweight title fights. Uh, it's been way too long since I've revisited some of Chuck Liddell's run, but I... Like, Chuck had great moments, but I don't think he had too many great title fights. Uh, maybe you could argue... Uh, I don't know, maybe the first show... If you're really into the technical stuff, the first Shogun and Machida fight. But, really, like, this one... This one immediately is... If this isn't at the top, it's top three easily. Because there's a pretty big gulf between whatever of those three you think is number three and number four. That's a pretty big chasm there. Um, I mean, I know Glover winning the belt uh, was was kind of a big moment, but I don't think it's not a great fight. It's a great like I said, it's a great moment, but if you look at the quality of the fight, it's it's okay. That's a this is very near the top. If this is your number one, I'm not arguing with you. Uh, Unless you just want to argue the unless you want to argue it, but I'm not like I, I don't think it's wrong at all. This is a great fight. Uh, I mentioned the pace. Um, just for the record, over the course of this fight, uh, total strikes: Glover Teixeira threw 212, Prochka threw 245. For je for guys of this size to keep that pace over that long a period of time. I mean, if we go round by round, um, the, the lowest activity round is maybe all totaled the fifth. Yeah, so just total strikes. Let's go round by round here. Uh, we'll do Teixeira and then Prohotchka. So Teixeira round one, 48 of 58. 48 of 58. Prohotchka, 20 of 31. Two... Uh, Teixeira, 32 of 48. Prohaska, 38 of 64. And I've said this before. If you've never tried to throw... Uh, throwing 100 strikes around... I mean, 68 is not 100 strikes around. But if you have to throw 68 strikes like you mean it over the course of five minutes... That's a... Even just working a heavy bag. Like, that's a, that's a slower heavy bag pace. But that's a pretty decent clip. Uh, round three. Big round for Prohaska here. Teixeira was 15 of 26. He was on the back foot for... He had six takedown attempts in that round. He was dying to get away from Prochka. Uh, he was 15 of 26. Prochka was 55 of 72. Uh, round four, both of them landed 29 strikes. Uh, Teixeira was 29 of 34. Prochka, 29 of 47. And then the final round... Yeah, Teixeira outlanded Prochka in the final round. 35 of 46 to 15 of 27. Uh... These two guys fought, had just a dogfight from start to finish with crazy momentum shifts. Both of them showing off. I mentioned my biggest questions. What can Prochka do if he's underneath the guy with Teixeira's top control? Turns out he was well-drilled and well-schooled for those positions. Could Teixeira deal with the damage that Prochka can put out? Turns out he held up very well. Uh, remarkably so in some respects. Teixeira's developed a really nice ability over his last handful of fights 
to roll with punches. Uh, his punching offense, his offensive boxing, has not improved dramatically. Uh, a lot of it these days is designed to set up his uh, his grappling attacks. But his defense on the feet has, not always in the most visible of ways, but it's improved. He's not getting caught clean as often. He's not getting hurt nearly as often as he used to. So kudos to whoever's working with him on that. Get him to double jab. <laughs> uh, if if Glover Teixeira would double jab before throwing some of those right hands, he'd be a he'd be a much scarier opponent, and he's pretty darn scary now, despite being 42. He's 42 years old and was you know the heavy the light heavyweight champion of the world of the UFC. See, I don't know that I thought of him as the best light heavyweight in the world, but he was certainly one of. To do that at 42, man, I'm I'm not 40, but I am closer to 40 than 30. Uh, had a kind of a running gag with some friends of mine. Uh, we need to create a... There's a guy on, I think it's TikTok, some social media platform. Um, I don't know the name of it. But I know people who are amused by his antics, consequently I'm aware of its existence, because cultural osmosis via your friend circle is a real thing. But he's this guy who does, once a week, he'll do something really stupid. He'll jump onto things, or he'll run into things. Um, if, you under, like, if you know what I'm talking about, you know. Like That description alone will tell you. He'll, you know, take his shirt off, and he jumps onto a pile of cheese graters and pineapples that are on a uh, like a piece of plywood set up between a couple of chairs. Uh, he just does this, does that kind of stuff. And the joke that we have is, you know, we need to do the for, the you know 40-year-old version of this. You know, I'm going to pick up this laundry basket with my back and this heavy this loaded laundry basket with my back instead of my legs or I'm going to take a nap on the couch using the couch cushions as a pillow instead of a regular one and just my neck is now messed up uh, I'm going to run I'm going to sprint quickly after this toddler that's uh, starting to run around the parking lot and just screw up my knees like you know, stuff like that because that's what your body does as it ages and here's Glover Teixeira at 42 out here going to the depths of hell with a guy like 13 years younger than him, bigger than him. I'm calling BS on the size measurements here, by the way. Um, they listed Glover as 6'2 and Prochka as 6'3. Watching these two next to each other, I'm calling Bull to... Uh, Prochka is at least two inches taller than Teixeira. I don't know if Prochka's really 6'4 and they're downplaying it, or if they're giving Glover 6'2 when he's more like 6'1-ish. But Prochka was a was the visibly much larger man in this fight. Now, Prochka's a big guy. I don't think that gets enough credit. Like, he's he's big, he's rangy, man. He's He's a handful. Uh, he's absolutely a handful. So, if you haven't seen this fight, go watch it. This is great. This is absolutely nuts. You, like I said, you get momentum swings in a way that... Uh, Teddy Atlas was tweeting this uh, event. 
And he does that for some of the bigger UFC events because he's kind of started watching him. He's been doing this for a little bit, but he started watching MMA more and talking a little bit about it and getting his insight into this because, well, he may not have a tremendous amount of knowledge about you know, some of the intricacies of wrestling and jujitsu. Anybody who spent that much time in the fight game is going to have valuable insights. And he said this fight, and I think he's correct, you know, that this fight had chapters. He li- kind of likened it to if you've seen the great trilogy between Mickey Ward and Arturo Gotti. And he didn't say it was that in terms of necessarily action, but those fights, both of them, or I'll say all three of them between those two gentlemen, they had this narrative develop over the course of the fight, this ebb and flow that came about in the course of the violence that that just kind of emerged naturally from how they fought and how they matched up and what they brought out of each other and what they brought to each other. And I think he's correct in the sense that you got that here. You got Prohoshka fighting long and landing punches. You got to share a landing takedowns, Prohoshka fighting up. Both men just inflicting damage to each other. Both men having to find slightly different angles. Prohoshka's takedown defense actually got better as the fight wore on. Uh, he got taken down twice in the first, not in the second, only once in the third, and that was barely. Uh, Teixeira was credited only with 1 minute and 17 seconds of control time. Uh, only once in the fourth, only once in the third. There's only once in the fifth, rather. One of three in the fifth. Uh, yeah, just very briefly about Teixeira's control time. 2.49 of the first, 1.35 in the second, 1.17 in the third, 2.33 in the fourth, and 1.33 in the fifth. Um... That's pretty solid control. Now, some of that control time is clinch work because they tend to give control to whoever is pushing the other guy into the fence as part of the control time. But that's still good. Those are still solid numbers. Like, If you showed me Glover to share a stat line and asked me, you know, without telling me who won, you know, just showed me the stat line for each round, who did I think, won, who would I guess would, won the, would win the fight based on the stats? I would say Glover, actually. Uh, a lot of this fight really did go his way. Again, not total all of it, but a lot of it. Uh, yeah, it's the the narrative flow of this fight, man. Again, the, this was this was almost professional wrestling esque in the sense that they were able to tell a story out there. Both of these guys looked great. They both. This fight showcased what makes both of them great in terms of what they can do, in terms of where their weaknesses are a little bit. And, I mean, even then, by the end of it, things had reversed. Teixeira was doing the better striking, and for Hotsky, it's the finish with a grappling exchange. Uh, it, it was great. It was absolutely great. Fight of the night, hands down. This might This is probably your fight of the year. Like, if something beats this, that'll be a special fight. This is a special fight, mind you. Anything that beats it for fight of the year is going to be, that's going to be next level insanity, whatever it happens to be. Uh, This was, this was a wonderful, wonderful fight. And these two, uh, again, they just took giant chunks out of each other. And I don't just mean that literally because they were cut. Uh, Again, Teixeira mentioned he wants to, he's going to, feels like he's going to continue fighting. If he still wants to, God bless you, man. Keep going if you feel so inclined. I mean, the performance he turned in tonight to Shara, that would have beaten so many other guys. Just couldn't quite get over the hump against Prohachka. 
Um, I need to say this about Prohachka. In the wake of this fight, I believe he absorbs more than six strikes a minute on average. Significant strikes. That's a lot. If you're getting hit six times a minute, if you're getting hit with a significant strike once every ten seconds in a fight, that's not a sustainable way to fight. He is a... If you look at a lot of the other... He is a champion now, so if you compare him to some of the other champions... You know, mo I think the UFC average is around three. Most champions are less are in the two and less category. This guy's getting hit somewhere between two and three times more than his fellow champions. That's n that's not sustainable. That's going to catch up. He's young. He's like 23, 24. Double check that. Sorry, 29. Not my mistake. Because yeah, Glover's 40. So still, he's 29, which is pretty young, especially at light heavyweight, where you know we peop, uh, fighters age differently for a variety of reasons. But he, so he's getting away with a lot of weird stuff because he's still young and athletic enough to get away with it. Um, he. I'm going to make a potentially blasphemous comparison here, but I beg you to just bear with me and not immediately start cursing me out here. He reminds me a little of Roy Jones Jr. in the following way. For those of you who just about lost your minds, in the following way. A lot of what Yuri does is very unconventional. And as long as there are some underlying athletic gifts that play along with that, he can make it work. As long as his chin is still solid, as long as his reflexes are still there, as long as his power is still there, it will work. There, however, does seem to be a bit of a lack of some fundamentals that you normally will fall back on as your body starts to slow down a little bit. This was one of the problems with Roy Jones Jr., if you look at his career. He was a phenom. Uh, for those of you who may, if you haven't seen, you know, Roy Jones Jr. in his prime, look, there's a bunch of his fights you should look up. He was amazing. Absolutely amazing. But there's a lot of boxing fundamentals that he didn't have. And he got away with it for a really long time. To a very high level. But once that started to go, he didn't have some of the foundational building blocks to fall back on and he fought way too long uh, which should not surprise anyone a lot of boxers do and towards the end his career you know, he, he fell off pretty hard when he started falling I worry that Prohachka might wind up taking a similar path he's on a good win he's on a really long winning streak his last loss was in 2015 when he fought King when he fought King Mo the wall in Ryzen And I believe he avenged that loss. He's on a long winning streak. And he's got a lot of success. But I do wonder what happens when that bill comes due. Because it always does. So, uh, I I don't know how long he'll hold the title. Light heavyweight's in a weird spot. Um, 
Uh, I suppose this is as good a time as any to dovetail into what might be next. Uh, we might get an immediate rematch. I don't. I think that's the least likely scenario. Let me, let me start with this. I think that's the least likely. Now, the UFC does have a habit of loving to try and run back great fights, and this is an all-time great fight. So we'd be silly not to consider the possibility, but I think it's the least likely. You have Jan Blahovic, the former champion, who is now who was at this event, and we could have an all-European title fight. Um, we would get, uh, again, Poland and the Czech Republic. Uh, so that's a fight that would make a degree of sense. Did Jan win a fight since losing the title? I need to double check that actually. I feel like he. I feel like he had a fight, but I could be very wrong about that. Yeah, he beat out. Yeah, the Rakich fight where Rakich blew his knee out. Unfortunate ending to that. But he's got to win. Um, so there's that. You have the upcoming fight between Anthony Smith and Magomed Ankalaev. I tend to think Ankalaev's coming for that belt at some point. Whether he'll get the next title shot or not immediately, that certainly remains to be seen. But those are kind of the three options. You've got, again, you have Blahovich, The winner of Smith on Kalaev, I think that's probably your second place option. Depending on the outcome of the fight. If one of them scores a spectacular win, that might force the issue. And then a rematch with uh, Teixeira. Again, I think third. I think that's probably... I think that's probably unlikely. So, I said I don't quite know how uh, how long Yuri's going to hold that belt, but taking it from him is not going to be an easy task. Would I favor? Let me just think about this very briefly. I would favor Prohachka in a rematch with Teixeira. I mean, I favored him here. I would favor him in a rematch. Still think that's a very close fight. But I favor him over Blahovich. That's a tough one. I might ever so slightly lean Prohachka over Blahovich, but I'd have to really think about that. I would favor him over Anthony Smith, uh, which is not me selling Anthony Smith short. I I respect Anthony Smith's abilities quite a bit. I think that's a I think that's a matchup thing. I just think the way Prohachka fights is gonna give give Smith problems. Um. Ankolaev. I've been joking for a while that I, uh, like when Teixeira won the belt, my joke was, okay, so Prochka takes it from him, and then Ankolaev takes it from Prochka. Um, I'm not sure about that. I might lean on Kolaev. I think I do. I think I le- as I think about it at the moment, I think I lean on Kalaev. Uh, all that is, of course, pursuant to change as more evidence becomes available. Another fun thought. Um, if Israel Adesanya wanted to try light heavyweight again, I'm not saying he does, but if he did. I think he might have a field day with Prochka. Prochka would have to change his style pretty significantly, I think. Uh, I don't know that Adesanya will be uh, entertaining that. He's got a fight with Jared Cannonier coming up, and that that is certainly occupying all of his headspace at the moment. 
as it should. That's not an easy fight, but just throwing that out there. The way Prohachka fights versus Adesanya, I might favor Izzy. Uh, yeah, again, I might have to rethink that if I some of, there's a physicality degree that had to be that has to be considered there because, like I said, Prohachka's a big guy. But I I do think I like Adesanya's chances in that theoretical fight. Um, as for what's next for Glover, I, I have no idea. Look, both these guys are going to be out for a bit. Wouldn't be shocked if they... I wouldn't be terribly shocked if neither of them fought again in this year. Um, we might get one more out of Prohachka. Uh, we could get one in fourth quarter. We get one November, December, maybe. I mean, but these two... Like, you go through this kind of a war, like, let your body recover from that there's no need for a fast turnaround so main event wonderful wonderful fight co-main event this will be much quicker valentina shevchenko defeats tyla santos via split decision there were two 48 47s one each way and then a 49 46 for shevchenko that seemed to have annoyed a lot of people a lot of people who don't understand the scoring criteria doing this live well, let me start with this. I think 48-47 either way is perfectly acceptable. I gave this to Santos live. I gave her the first three rounds and then Shevchenko four and five. However, the second round in particular is a very difficult round to kind of wrap your head around in, in a lot of ways. Now, um... I don't want to go... The technique on display here was not all that great. Um, Shevchenko looked really flat. Like, she came out and was just kind of flat on her feet. She didn't move a whole lot. I don't know if she was trying to induce Santos to be more aggressive. I don't know if there was some kind of an injury or an illness or a... Whatever. Like, but some, she did not look like she normally looks uh, in terms of her overall, like, uh, mobility and fight posture and whatnot. So... Uh, want to make note of that. Uh, Shevchenko kept trying the head and arm throw. Kept getting reversed. Like, Santos had a lot of back control in this fight. It's one of the things that a lot of people are kind of like, how could you possibly... Uh, if you think she won, like, if you think Santos won, I'm not arguing against you. But there's a lot of people going, well, she had back control for a long period of time. And she did. Deserves to be noted. But this is where the scoring criteria comes into play. And the fact that most people don't seem to really understand it. So, before I get into the scoring criteria, just very briefly. So, yeah, Shevchenko just got reversed on that head and arm throw a few different times. Got reversed on a lateral drop attempt. The physical strength of Santos seemed to give her a few problems. Normally, Valentina is just a much the much stronger fighter. She didn't quite have that same physical advantage here. Uh, her defense was really good on the. I mean, Tyler Santos is a legitimate finisher for a lot of the time, and she's got uh, she had her she had Shevchenko's back for long periods of time and was never able to mount any significant offense off of it. That's a credit to Shevchenko's defense. Um, but. There was a clash of heads in the third round, I think, and turns out it broke Santos's right orbital bone. Her eye swelled up. Uh, the doctor, by the way, who examined her eye between rounds four and five, 
Um, never let that, I don't know if that's your, if anyone out there listening, if that's your personal doctor, do not go to that man. He did not examine, uh, that eye in any real way. He did not perform any kind of vision test. He asked Santos if she could see. She said yes. He said okay. There's, that eye was swollen. Uh, shut, it looked like. Looked like to me. And I didn't, he didn't hold up the fingers. He didn't, you know, how many fingers am I holding up? You know, follow my eye, follow my fingers. It moves around, cover the other eye. What do you see? None of that. Absolutely none of that. Ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous job by the medical professional. So shame on him for this one. I'm not even saying, I think it should have been stopped. But if the doctor had gone through the appropriate procedures and then made a more, made a more, fair determination uh you know that that's a different story instead pfft. no can you see what do they get 99% of fighters in that in that position here's the position you put you put Tyler Santos in just for the record one there's a bit of a language barrier there so there's that two this is a fight she's winning. Um, she feels like she's winning, I think, officially. So two of the... Um, what are the official scorecards after three? Or sorry, after four. I think we would have had a draw after four rounds. Um, let me look this up. Hang on. Yeah, so after the fourth... We would have had a draw. Uh, Dan Lethaby would have had Santos up one round... Uh, Clemens Werner would have had Shevchenko up one round, and then Howard Hughes would have had it even to a piece. Um, so, it, you're asking this woman in a fight that she is, again, ostensibly winning, certainly performing very, very well, to rely on the judges to determine the outcome of her dream. Sorry, most fighters in that position are not going to say, I can't see, even if they can't. Just most of them are not. Uh, rounds four and five, clearly for Shevchenko, um, universally. Uh, here's here's the problem. Now, I was watching this fight, and I was talking live with a uh, contributor to this podcast on occasion, Pat Mullen. Um, he was watching this, and we were kind of chatting back and forth uh I tend to check in between rounds and whatnot uh, during coverage. And he was four to one for Shevchenko. Here's the logic. And let me preface what I'm about to say here with this is defensible under the scoring criteria. While, while Santos had significant portions of back control, she did very little damage and had very few legitimate submission attempts. The second round in particular, I think, is a very... is kind of the round that should swing things here, my opinion. Because while Santos had back control, because I believe she ended the round on the back, how much time she actually had, how much control time she was credited with, she was given a total of 849 of control time, and in the second round, she had 340. 
Now, not all of that 340 is on the back, obviously. But prior to that, um, if we're talking total strikes, prior to that, Shevchenko landed 64 of 81. Uh, and Santos, here, here's kind of the killer about this. Santos had three minutes and 40 seconds of control time in the second round. And she landed four significant strikes over that round. Four. The current scoring criteria. This is something everyone needs to understand, so I'm going to be very clear. The, the language used prioritizes damage. Not control position, not even dominant control positions. If you have been out damaged, it doesn't really matter how much time you spend in a control position if you don't do anything with it. Now, I understand why that is. And it frankly is, it's designed to work in fights like we had a fight earlier on the card I'll touch on briefly later between uh, Jacob Malkoon and Brendan Allen where Malkoon was able to get takedowns and had some good control, but wasn't able to muster much offense with it, whereas Allen was able to find significant offense throughout the course of all three rounds. Uh, I didn't give... I, I don't think I gave Allen all three rounds, but the point is, if you're not doing something with your dominant position, the current scoring criteria does not care that you have a dominant position. You are not given credit for that unless it services you to inflict damage and get closer to a finish. Now, get closer to a finish is not in the scoring criteria. It is mostly about damage. In the second round, Valentina Shevchenko did more damage. Period. Now, you can argue whether or not that should be the determinant criteria in scoring a fight. There's a debate to be had there. You want my opinion, and you're listening to my show, so I assume you at least are curious. My thought is, if someone is on your back for as long as Santos was here, it was about two minutes of back control. Again, almost four of total control. Some of that was clinch work, some of that was in different places on the ground, some of that was just top position, but not, like, it's complicated. I get it. Shevchenko had a go-go plata attempt, believe it or not, in that round. Uh, she threw elbows off of her back. Uh, it was a pretty nice go-go plata attempt, actually, too, <laughs> for the record. Uh, but if you... My thought process tends to be, if someone's on your back for that long, you should have lost the round. But my opinion of what should of what the scoring criteria should be is somewhat immaterial. In fact, it's entirely immaterial, because my opinion doesn't really affect anything. The scoring criteria right now prioritizes damage. If you're not using positional advantage to inflict damage or threaten, then you're not going to be rewarded for it under the current criteria. And this is not a... Let me, let me say this. That's not a judging problem, with air quotes around judging, as though it's the individual judges. This is not such and such a judge sucks at their job. Sometimes it is. We're not talking about one of those times. That 4-1 to one is defensible. 
it, look, Shevchenko probably should have won the second. As I think back on it, live I gave it to Santos. Thinking back on it with the criteria in mind, it probably should have gone to Shevchenko. Round three, uh, look, round one goes to goes to Santos unanimously. Like there's there's no there's no discussion there. Round three is a little bit dicier. Uh, again, Santos has a fair amount of control time. The problem is activity here. Now, this is something of an unfair... I hate to say unfair. But this is the reality you're going to run up against. Okay? If you're a fighter, if you're a fan, understand this. Getting the back is hard. Holding the back is its own skill set. And it's not easy. And it's not easy to do against someone who knows what they're doing. So if you're Tyler Santos and you get the back of Valentina Shevchenko, which she did, that's hard. To get it and hold it is really hard. To get it, hold it, and inflict damage or threaten submissions or whatnot, that's incredibly difficult. But that is what you are called upon to do under the scoring criteria. Now, if if the damage had been more even, then you could, in theory, have weigh the other bits of it a little bit more heavier, the other parts of the scoring criteria. If we're talking round three, total strikes, Shevchenko 46 of 54, Santos 10 of 18. Uh, if we go to significant strikes instead of total strikes, Shevchenko was 17 of 22 to 7 of 15 for Santos. You had 2 minutes and 21 seconds of control time in the third round, and you could not put up double-digit significant strikes. You barely got to double-digit total strikes. That's a problem. That's a real problem. And it's... I'm not saying this to, uh, to you know, dunk on Santos or anything. This is for everyone, so you understand what's going on here. The current scoring criteria prioritizes damage over everything else. If someone deals more damage than someone else, even if they're in bad positions for a chunk of it, if they're dealing more damage, if they are being more effective, then they're winning. You don't have to like that. In fact, you might not. I'm not entirely sure I do, to be candid. I think it... I heard Luke Thomas say this, and I think he's right. This is a bit of an overcorrection in term, because it used to be a takedown... This is where the lay and pray term comes from. I'll get a takedown, I'll be in your full guard, I'm on top, you're on bottom, and we don't do a whole lot, but because I'm on top and you're on bottom, I'm winning. I win rounds this way, I win fights this way. And I don't have to do a whole lot. And fans didn't like it. Promoters didn't like it. A bunch of fighters didn't like it. Like, no one really enjoyed this. I do feel this is a bit of an overcorrection because it does not properly reward some incredibly difficult parts of the game. So getting to the back is hard. Holding the back is hard. But if you are not able to use that position to 
effectively grapple or effectively strike and effectively impact your opponent in some meaningful way other than just stopping them from taking that position away from you, you're, you better hope that everything else was even. You better hope that the criteria that is weighted heavier than that was even so that that criteria can be considered. Said You may not like that. I may not like that, but that is the current judging criteria. And like I said, this is not an individual judging problem in the sense that individual judges suck. I've yelled at individual judges before. I will again, in all probability. But judges are not hired to just be themselves and score fights. They are given the criteria by which the fight is scored. And they must abide by that. You don't like the criteria, that's fine. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying understand it. Look, I've kind of come Speaking of the scoring criteria, I've come around on the idea that scoring the fight as a whole might be a better fit for MMA than round by round. I don't know that that's true. There's not enough evidence. Look, scoring fights as a whole, UFC did that early. People forget this. But early in the UFC's run, that was how you scored fights. That's how Boss Rutan beat Kevin Randleman. Those judges that scored that fight scored the fight as a whole, not round by round. Uh, there was a time when that was the scoring methodology. Uh, Pride always did that. Pride always scored the fights as a whole. I think um, I think 1FC does. Pretty sure Ryzen does too. Like they, they don't score round by round. They score the fight as a whole. And you still get wonky decisions. Like the, This is one of those things people forget about Pride or they don't necessarily pay attention to in one or whatnot, but it's not perfect. You still get weird decisions. That happens. But I, I do think that's that might be a better fit for MMA than round by round. Uh, just my hunch. But I, I, I have kind of come around on that. Um, the fight itself was not great. This, this is more about the scoring. So again, we talk about the third round in particular. So round two can go either. Round two probably should go to Shevchenko, but a bare minimum could go either way. Here's the thing about round three, which is the other round that's a little bit in dispute here. That's one that watching live, you know, again, Pat said, yeah, I've got Shevchenko getting that round as well. One of the judges agreed with him. Uh, I didn't see it live. Again, live, I gave that one to Santos, and I might stand by that if I rewatch the fight, for the record. But if you look at round three, here's another bit of reality that you have to deal with. I mentioned these numbers before. Significant strike, Shevchenko 17 of 22 to just 7 of 15 for Santos. Total strikes, Shevchenko is 56 of, uh, 46 of 54 to just 10 of 18 from Santos. Uh, Santos was credited with one submission attempt. Did not get all that close. Um, and she had one takedown. Uh, yeah, I... I'm sorry. Now, now, look, the stats alone are not going to give you all the information you need for this fight, or any fight for that matter. But if you want to understand how, under the scoring criteria, you could arrive at the conclusion that Shevchenko won the third, that's why. Um, I mean, rounds four and five were fairly, were a lot more active. I mean, you threw up those numbers, and for Santos, they were very, very low for the first three rounds. 
Round four, Santos was in total strikes, 33 of 62. She landed... I mean, she was a fairly active... She had a fairly active second round in terms of total strikes, but, okay, so let's go to significance for the record. There was a lot of clinching in this fight. A lot of really small stuff on the ground, too. So if we go to significant, Santos in round one was five, round two, four, round three, seven. So she landed 16 significant strikes over the first three rounds. Round four, she lands 28. <laughs> uh, round five, she landed 11. Um... Yeah, she just, she, as that, especially once her eye kind of swelled shut in the fourth, more or less, uh, she had to kind of engage more on Shevchenko's terms. And Shevchenko, I want to give her credit for this. She got more active as the fight wore on uh, because she knew she was losing, or she felt she was losing. So she had to be a bit more authoritative in the last couple of rounds, and like I said, I gave this to Santos when scoring it live. I don't argue with anyone. I think 48-47 either way is imminently defensible, as I sit here thinking about it now. Uh, with two kind of... Two probably being the easiest round to be a swing round. And three is a swing round if you get really noodly about the scoring criteria. Which, as a judge, you can and maybe should. Uh, here's the only other thing I want to say about this. Uh, well, two things. One, Santos might get an immediate rematch off of this, and while this fight was not great, it's women's flyaway. It's like, who cares? Uh, who cares is a, bit of a, is a bit dramatic, but... I don't think there's another kind of... You got Misha Tate potentially entering the flyweight ranks, and that might muddy the waters, but we gotta wait a bit on that. We might get an immediate rematch here. Might. This was easily the toughest fight that Shevchenko has had at flyweight ever. So they might try to run that back. I don't think Santos... If Santos wins her next fight, she can get a rematch off of one win. I, I do believe that. So, last thing here would be... I told you guys that I took Santos seriously. This is why. I didn't pick her. I didn't think it would be this close. This is not me going... You know, I am some Nostradamus of fighting. I'm, I'm not. But I made sure when I previewed this to give Santos credit. She was 19-1 and one coming into this on a four-fight winning streak, four or five. Uh, she earned a shot. You go, on a long enough, you go on a winning streak like that, especially in a shallower division, you've earned it. And her skills were legitimate. And I told you guys that you know, that was deserving of respect and that a lot of people were going to completely sleep on her. And as we got closer to this fight... I think I actually put in my preamble for the coverage, Tyla Santos is the kind of fighter that dominant champions tend to stumble against. And lo and behold, very nearly. Very, very nearly. So, uh, I don't know exactly what's next for Shevchenko. Again, if Misha Tate looks great in her flyweight debut, they might do that. She might want to try and fight at bantamweight to try and become a two-division champion. This was her seventh consecutive title defense. Um, she has now she now has the record for most consecutive title defenses amongst women in a single division in the UFC history. She, she surpassed Ronda Rousey's record of six. Now Amanda Nunes obviously has more total title defenses, but hers are spread across two different weight classes, whereas all of Shevchenko's have been at flyweight. So 
heck of an achievement from Shevchenko there. Again, she... I think that the, I don't think this fight was quite as close when you look at appropriate application of the scoring criteria as other people did. And I think, again, I kind of think I got this wrong doing it live. Fair enough. Doing this live, doing it, scoring this live the way I do is very imperfect. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't really have a whole lot else. This wasn't a terribly interesting fight. Uh, other than... People expected Santos to get blown out of the water, and she gave Shevchenko a very competitive fight. Uh, next up, boy, this is going to be a long one. I mean, I mean the overall show. Um, Zhang Weili and Joanna Yanjacek. Um, Zhang defeats Yanjacek via knockout, spinning back fist 228 of the second. Oof. Uh, let's talk about the fight before I talk about what happened after. Um, Zhang takes the first round pretty cleanly. Um, they did a little bit of the brawling. Like, I, I, this, these two are a bit of magic when they fight. Uh, Shevchenko, not Shevchenko, sorry, Yin Jacek opened up a bit more with kicks. Um, she kind of tried to get to her kicking game a little bit in this, on the first round. Zhang looking for her kind of usual counters. The tide turned a little bit when Zhang hit a double leg towards the fence, and Joanna was able to wall walk and separate, but the whole way along the way she was taking punches. Um, Joanna landed pretty good elbows, they broke that clinch. But ultimately Zhang takes the first, and the kind of physicality of Zhang was on display, and her, her improved wrestling uh, was really, really kind of helped out here. Second round... The thing about this, though, is the tide seemed like it might be shifting a little bit towards Joanna as that round ended. Um, yeah, Zhang attempted six takedowns in that uh, in the first round, I seem to recall. Wrong tab. Uh, she attempted five in the first round, and she got three, so that that's pretty good. But she struggled to hold them, and I... Again, like kind of as that fight wore on, Joanna did a better and better job of defending. But uh, t um, yeah, Zhang took the first round, significant strike. She was 47 of 66 to Joanna's 22 of 39. Uh, the clinch favored Zhang a little bit more here, and the second round obviously. Second round, Joanna started going southpaw uh, a little bit in the second, and I didn't quite, uh, I don't quite know why. If she was looking to open up head kicks, she didn't really ever throw them. Uh, it was a bit of an odd choice. Um, th that said, I'm sure there was a logic behind it, so I, I just... It, it did not... It's not immediately apparent to me. Uh, Zhang kind of started throwing side kicks to keep Joanna at bay. She threw one, and it kind of glanced off Joanna, and she landed at the... Um, Joanna took the outside angle, the more do the traditionally dominant angle. So, if I kick you with my left leg and you come down on your own right, if you come down on the outside of my leg with kind of my back towards you, that's where Joanna landed. Uh, it's what you, I mean, in boxing, it's a great angle. It's a pretty good angle for MMA. But in MMA, you have to worry about spinning attacks. And Zhang, who throws that side kick a lot, seems to have drilled that if that sequence happens, throw the spinning back fist. Land, it's more. This is more of a hammer fist than a back fist if you look at the position of the hand, but that's kind of a noodly distinction. She throws it, lands 
behind, like right under the ear and on the neck. You want to face plants. Um, brutal finish. Uh, it's a solid win for Zhang, who will get a shot at Carla Esparza in all likelihood, and I favor her to beat the crap out of Carla Esparza. I'm just going to say it. Uh, would have favored Joanna to beat Carla, too. I mean, I hate to be dismissive of Carla because what she accomplished deserves to be noted. You know, winning the title twice with that giant gap of time in between title wins. But Esparza might be the worst person, the worst fighter to hold a UFC title twice. And if I, I think if we limit that discussion to two-time UFC champions, uh, she runs away with that distinction. I might have to, because two-time champions are a little bit rare. Uh, yeah, and I think Esparza is probably the Again, you say you know you say the worst fighter to accomplish that. It's it sounds very very mean, and I don't mean it to be mean, but I would not favor Carla to. Again, I I might favor Rose if they matched her and Esparza up for a third time. They're not going to because that second fight was awful. But you know, I Rose is a better fighter than Carla. Zhang's a better fighter than Carla. Joanna's a better fighter than Carla. Like you can go down that list. And there's a few people at the top that you kind of clearly favor to beat Carla Esparza. And I don't think that's been true of any other multiple-time UFC champion. Um, so, anyway, I expect Zhang to reclaim the title. I really do. Might be surprised. Esparza might surprise us, but it would be a shock. I mean, Zhang is physically strong. She's a heck of an athlete. She has worked pretty diligently on improving aspects of her game that needed it. She's got heavy hands. She can fight five rounds. I I would have a really hard time seeing Esparza winning that fight. A really hard time. Uh, post fight, Joanna left her gloves in the cage, retired, got a little, got to give a speech. Um. I don't know if Joanna will stay retired because MMA retirements are a little bit like professional wrestling retirements. Um, you know, they they don't always stick. So, uh, so they don't they, they don't always stick. But couple of things about Joanna's here. She said that she wants to... She'd been off for two years, first of all, which we talked a little bit about last time. She... She's been doing this for a long time. She mentioned she'd been training for about 20 years. Now, she's probably been training for a little bit longer than that, but, you know, she got... I think she got into, like, amateur Muay Thai and whatnot when she was, you know, teenager. She's 35, and she's, she says she has other life goals she wants to achieve. She wants to become a mother. And it's not that you can't be a mom and be a fighter, but it's understandable if you would want to that you would want to kind of move on from fighting to do that. You know, being a uh, being a parent is a it's a high calling. It's a wonderful responsibility, and I. I'm not going to say anything negative about it. 
Except, you know, this is just a note, if that's what she wants to do, if that's a priority for her, if she's 35, uh, that is something you need to be pursuing at that time if that's something that you, uh, if that's something you and your partner care about. And she's, uh, she's married. So if she and her husband want to have kids, not cut, not putting yourself through weight cuts, not... I don't expect her to get, you know, lazy or anything, but, you know, not devoting that much, as much time to the gym, being able to focus on what your body needs to do to, uh, you know, attempt to, you know, attempt to become pregnant, then during pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. So, and at 35, again, if that's a priority, yeah, I understand. Um, sh I remember covering Joanna's first UFC fight. I'm going to get a little bit nostalgic here. She beat Juliana Lima, and I believe Lima missed weight. And I very much liked what I saw out of her from a technical standpoint. Uh, so seeing her retire, like, that's... I, I didn't get emotional the way other people did, but I did get a little bit nostalgic about that because, I've, I said, I've seen her entire UFC career from start to finish. Uh, she was a very important figure, I think, for women's strawweight. You know, she she had five consecutive title defenses. You know, she was the she was the man, she was the queen, she was the boogie woman. Uh, she forced that division to step its game up, and it took a while for it to catch up to her, but it did. Uh, I, I mean, when she first was kind of in the it, in the scene, in the UFC, you know, we called her Joanna Violence, because that's what she brought. And then Joanna Champion, and she was still violent as champion. Like she turned in, she's turned in some of the greatest fights in women's history. Not just, you know, not just the greatest. Uh, she's turned in other great fights. Her second fight with Rose Namajunas is a darn good fight. Uh, if you want to see like her, her kind of masterpiece, right? Like, the the masterpiece of a fight that she put together. Her fight with Jessica Andrade is a masterclass. Is an absolute... Again, like, that's that's her Sistine Chapel. Right? It, there's a lot of fights you could say uh, in that same vein of about her. Um, you know, the way she, she massacred Carla Esparza to win that title. Her first title defense, she brutalized Jessica Penne, like carved her up with elbows, shattered her nose, just brutalized her. But if you want to know, if you want to see the kind of like the the peak of her technical ability, of her fight management, her most virtuoso performance in a lot of respects, it's that Andrade fight. Where she just, with superior ring craft, timing, distance management, utterly dissects. The fight goes the distance, but she utterly diffuses and dissects a very dangerous, powerful opponent who would go on to become a champion herself. Uh, so I've I've got a lot of memories of Joanna. Got a lot of memories of her fights. Uh, profoundly important figure. I would venture to say the greatest straw weight uh, in UFC history thus far. Someone else will, might surpass her, 
Um, Rose has just, here's why I say that, like, Rose has never been able to really put together the same kind of string of dominance that Ioana did. And I think that's an important component here. Uh, you know, post, after losing the title, Ioana fought for it again twice. Uh, and frankly, I thought she beat Zhang in their first fight. I scored that for her. And I have pretty much every time on rewatch, too. So she's, uh, if she's retired, if she stays retired, I, all I can say is thank you. You know, it, uh, she had a great career. She achieved a heck of a lot. I have wonderful memories, and I hope she, I hope she got a nice big pay bump for this rematch. So good for her. I wish her nothing but the best in what she does next. Hopefully the rest of this goes a little bit faster. <laughs> uh, Jake Matthews defeats Andre Fialo via knockout punches 224 of the second. Easily, easily the best performance of Jake Matthews' career. He looked smooth, good shot selection, had the right air about him, uh, dealt with adversity a couple of times. Uh, Fialo tagged him once or twice. Problem with Fiala was his his defense was not there. He kind of didn't, didn't move his head enough. Kept getting led and walked into strikes. And credit to Matthews for being able to do so. But it was yeah it was just not a uh, rough night for Fialho, But this was his fourth fight I think of 2022. So might be something to be said for maybe taking just a little bit more time to let your body recover maybe. But this was Matthews, this was potentially his kind of coming of age fight. Like, I mentioned this before, man. Matthews has been with the UFC for a long time. And since 2014, he's been with the UFC. And he's been up and down. Um, in some pretty big ways in some cases. But this was... Uh, this was his first strike related win I'll look here real fast because submission submission for his first two lost to James Vick had a doctor stoppage against uh, Akbar Ariola submitted Johnny Cage case stopped by Kevin Lee that was rough lost to Andrew Holbrook uh, nice win decision win decision submitted Shinso Anzai got submitted by Anthony Rocco Martin an anaconda choke it was a nice choke Decision, decision, decision. Lost to Sean Brady. Knockout of Andre Fialho. If this is the form he's able to find consistently, um, he could be a real... We've been... For a long time, his potential has been talked about. But he's struggled a little bit to really put it all together. If he's able to do so like this going forward consistently... He can be a problem. He can be a real problem. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Jack Della Maddalena defeated Ramazan Amiv via TKO uh, punches. Body shot punch really did it. 232 of the first. Um, I picked Amiv here, I seem to recall. Um, and Amiv had some good moments in this. Uh, hit a nice takedown. Had a really nice uh, anaconda choke attempt. Uh, credit to Madalena, Della Maddalena for getting out of it. He, uh, Della Maddalena has a really good boxing background. It's very obvious because of how he moves, how he punches and whatnot. 
Um, his body shot to end this was really nice. You know, let, let's talk body shots for just a second here. Um, it was a left, so it was a liver shot that uh, ultimately kind of folded up Ameev. There's a couple of ways to go about hitting someone in the body, believe it or not. And it's worth discussing the difference very briefly. What makes a liver shot effective, if you've ever been hit there, what makes it effective is there's a little bit of the liver. The liver is, a very, is the largest internal organ in the body. I think it's the second largest organ, period, behind only the skin. Because your skin is an organ. But internal would somewhat necessitate a, dis a different point of discussion there. Anyway, there's a little bit of your liver that hangs down under your floating ribs. Uh, the rest of it is protected by the rib cage. You can still hurt someone to the body through the ribs. But there's a bit of the organ, a little bit, that just kind of hangs down. You can, you can actually feel it if you're so inclined. Like, reach under your right rib cage. You can kind of feel a little bit there. Yeah, there's a little bit that hangs down there. And if you... And hitting an unprotected organ hurts. That's why it's a good. That's why it's a good shot. But there's different. Again, there's different ways of doing this. Now, uh, I apologize if this makes anyone uncomfortable. So I will be as clinical in this particular discussion as possible. If you look at other organs that are potentially susceptible to attack. Um, there's part of the male anatomy. <laughs> uh, your reproductive organs that, you know, kind of hang out down there. So, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you a simple question. I want you to think about this for a second, because this applies to the type of body shot we have here. Is it worse to be hit... With kind of a full, with kind of a thudding blow to the groin, or something that kind of glances off and skims. It's still with power, but instead of a full-on like thud, something that kind of smacks off the surface, you know, it hits and then bounces off. Now neither is pleasant. Uh, not to potentially kink shame anyone, but neither is pleasant. But, I think we all know there's a difference. It's actually not as painful to take a full-on thudding blow than a glancing blow. Uh, this has been my experience. I train, I have been hit in the groin, I mean, I played dodgeball in high school... I got hit in the groin a few different times during that particular game. Like I, uh, I think any look. I think all of us, gentlemen, we've all experienced some kind of pain down there. <laughs> and while those thudding kind of blows are not pleasant, you get a more immediate reaction and a lot more kind of fast sensation out of those like slapping ones. And that's kind of what you do. So if you're hitting someone to the body and you're thudding in and you can't quite get the reaction you want, as an experiment, try raking across instead of digging in. Um, again, try hitting and then kind of glancing or skipping off afterwards. You know, hit and then rake through instead of hitting and driving in. You might get a better reaction 
Uh, again, if you want to, if you're interested in potentially trying this on yourself, uh, again, you can use the liver. It's that little bit right there. Kind of, you know, hit it straight and hard and then hit it and then kind of glance off. And you'll feel it. It's actually a little bit more immediate to deal with that kind of surface whack instead of the thud. And that's what Jack, all that is to say, that's what Della Maddalena did here. The left that he landed, it hit and it hit hard. But if you watch the motion of the punch, it's not necessarily driving through the body. It's driving across. So it hits and it rakes across the target. And it gets a very quick reaction. And so, again, if you're having trouble with body shots, uh, getting someone to react and you're kind of thudding them in, try try raking across. Again, you still need some penetrative force, but try the try that instead. You might again, you might get a better reaction. Uh, I mean, body shots are all about timing as much as anything else. Anyway, you want to catch them breathing. You know, you want to catch them when they're breathing in, and that'll just end it 90% uh, of the time. You you catch them breathing in. That'll do it. So, good stuff from Jack Della Maddalena. Pay attention to that guy. He's got a lot of skill. So, that was your main card. Um, we lost the fight between Manel Cap and Rogerio Bontarine. Um, Bontarine had medical issues related to his weight cut. The fight was scrapped. Sucks. Was looking forward to it. But as for the rest of the prelims, uh, as far as the prelims, they go like this. Uh, Josh Kulabau defeated Sung Woo Choi via split decision, 29-28s. No issue with 29-28 um, for Kulabau. Might be an argument for Choi in there, but um, fun little fight, actually. I think this was probably your fight of the night before... This was your fight of the night until Zhang and Yin Jacek for as long as that lasted, and then, you know, Prochka and Teixeira took a... <laughs> took fight of the year in all probability. Um, Hayasir Mashate. Knocked out Steve Garcia, 114 to the first round. Garcia got a little bit sloppy coming in from southpaw. Kind of shifted, throwing a left. Mahashte faded to his own right. Comes, comes across with a right hand to the jaw. Boom. Face plants him. A lot of face planting. Uh, this one reminded me of a flare flop. The the When Yinjacek fell, Yinjacek fell more like Apollo in that flashback in Rocky 4. Uh, fell like Apollo Creed in Rocky 4. Like that, that's kind of how she fell, just real bump. Here was a little bit of a flare flop, and a, a nice stuff from Mahashte there. Uh, middleweight, Brendan Allen defeated Jacob Malkoon via unanimous decision, 29-28. Again, Malkoon had good takedowns. His wrestling is good. It really is. He just needs to find more offense off of it. He needs to start putting stuff behind it. Because Allen found ways to do damage against the... Um, was the round that would be in question here? Maybe the first? I forget exactly. Um, there was one round that Mal... No, I think Malkoon took the first. So I think the second. Um, the second round... Again, Allen was the one who was able to inflict damage, whereas Malkoon struggled to do anything with some of the control positions he got. That's kind of how that played out. Uh, Kyung Ho Kong defeated Dana Batgari via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. Fun little fight. Good win for Kong. Uh, Silvana gomez Juarez defeated Leong Na via knockout, 122 of the second. Na just... I don't know that she's ready for this level. I'm just going to say it. 
Uh, she got a little bit aggressive. She threw a... She stepped forward into punching range, ostensibly behind a jab, except she wasn't really behind it. Her chin... She came in straight. Problem number one. Her head was still on the center line. Problem number two. Problem number three. Her jab was not only telegraphed, she wasn't... Her shoulder was still level. All of this adds up to Juarez crushing her with a right cross uh, and then finishing her off shortly thereafter. Uh, yeah, nice finish from Gomez Juarez, who might be among the harder punchers at straw weight. Again, Zhang Weili has a lot of power too, but and Gomez Juarez has plenty of other issues that she has to figure out uh, as far as her overall game goes. But she's got power. She's absolutely got power. And kicking off everything, Jocelyn Edwards defeated Ramona Pasquale via unanimous decision. 228s, 130-27. 30-27's a little bogus here. Pasquale had the first. She hurt Edwards with body shots. Uh, pretty visibly, actually. Um, so I don't agree with 30-27. Edwards taking rounds two and three. Perfectly fine. That's how I scored it. No argument with Edwards winning. But 30-27? Eh, no. No. Just did not agree with that. So that was the card. As for our bonuses, there were a lot of performance bonuses. Fight of the night went to Prochka and Teixeira. Fifty grand for that performance is almost an insult. Throw another zero onto that. Give each of those guys five hundred thousand dollars. You tell me that wasn't a million dollar fight. You tell me that. You can't tell me that with a straight face. That's a million-dollar fight. Easy. Easy. Ugh. You know, before I get to the rest of this, very briefly, because this relates to the performance bonuses and whatnot. The UFC, um, there were some financial filings, I think, earlier this week. Or, them or Endeavor had financial... I forget one of the two, but... People who do the, who look at the financials of this kind of stuff a lot more in detail than I do looked at what they had and mentioned that, okay, we can now kind of determine that uh, the, I think it's the IBITA, which is an acronym for Earnings Before Interest Depreciation, Earnings Before Interest Depreciation and Taxes. There's a T in there. Um, the UFC is making like a billion dollars a year now. They're a billion-dollar company. And you know what? Good for them. I No sarcasm. None at all. The UFC is a very successful entity. They have worked... Here's the other thing about this. They work very, very hard. The, the UFC personnel work very hard. They have worked very hard to make this company what it is. The company deserves every bit of success it has. I do not begrudge them making that much money. Not one iota. Okay. They have uh, they have negotiated very lucrative television deals. They put on a lot of events. They like they have built their machine. They are monetizing it, and I have no problem with their success. Understand what I'm about to say here. I'm not saying that the UFC does not deserve to be financially successful. I'm not saying they didn't work very, very hard to achieve it. None of that. Not at all what I'm saying. 
I am saying, if you're going to crow about your financial success, and deservedly so, if you run a company that makes a billion dollars a year and you want to brag about that, you know what? Go right ahead. That's a difficult thing to do. You have earned... You have earned bragging rights for that. Million percent. Right? You cannot... Here's the problem with the UFC. You then cannot turn around and go, we can't afford to pay our fighters more. You can't do it. The UFC tries to keep its percentages of its percentage of fighter pay under 20 percent it's probably around 15 it's all said and done that's what they spend on their fighters per year now as the ufc makes more money the real number for fighters does go up a little bit but that percentage does not and that's i take issue with that look at what prohachka and Teixeira did watch that fight again Tell me each of them should not be making at least a million dollars for that fight. You can't tell me that. You cannot tell me that's not a million dollar fight effort. Like, that's not a million dollar, you can't tell me that's not a million dollar fight. At least. At least. So, again, the UFC happy to crow about their financial success. And again, I don't blame them. But you can't then say, well, we can't afford to pay fighters more. You're a billion-dollar company. They just signed a deal with some stupid thing. Uh, what was it? V-Chain? I don't even know what they do. But they've got, you know, so a couple of the corners of the octagon have their logo, and they have, I think they're going to be the presenter of the um, fighter rankings. It's be like the v-chain whatever fighter rank the ufc v-chain fighter rankings or whatever it is i don't know how they're gonna word it but like they got they got paid well for that by the way and i'm not saying they shouldn't be paid well for that the ufc's airtime is valuable i don't dispute that no one disputes that what we take issue with is the fact that v-chain is cutting this large check to the ufc so it's crypto by the way crypto.com or whoever, you know, I mean, Howlerhead probably doesn't because Dana White owns Howlerhead. But, you know, proper number 12 pays to be there. Any movies that are on the canvas pay to be there. Whoever is sponsoring the prep point pays to be there. That's valuable airtime. No one disputes it. But the fighters don't see any of that. And that's the problem. That's the problem. You gave 50 grand to that main event each. When again, like, I, you know what happens in boxing when a fight's that good? I'm not here to defend every um, nuance of boxing. But when Mickey Ward and Arturo Gotti had their trilogy, their second and third fights were each, um, were a million dollars for each of them for, for fights two and three. Certainly, I'm pretty sure, uh, certainly the third, and I'm pretty sure the second. Like, fighters in boxing are able to get that kind of stuff. You can't in the UFC. You are subject to the whims of management. And, look, man, again, you look at what Prochka and Teixeira put themselves through in that fight. 
and understand, and I mean this, they were not adequately compensated for it. They were absolutely not paid what that fight was worth. Anyway, so the UFC gave out, what, five performances, performance of the night bonuses? Yeah, five. Um, which, again, I'm sure they're all patting themselves on the back over. Uh, performances of the night, not being, going to leave that alone now. I said my piece, leaving it alone. Performances of the night went to Zhang Weili, Jake Matthews, Jack Della Maddalena, Mahashte, who goes just by the singular name, so he might be... There's weird naming. I've been struggling with this with, uh, actually, believe it or not, uh, Dana Batkari. Like, I I don't know which is the appropriate name to refer to. I know Zhang Weili, because I know that in Chinese naming structure, family name comes first, individual names come second. So her family name is Zhang. When you westernize it, like, again, if you were to westernize her name, it would be Weili Zhang. Zhang is the surname. But Japanese culture and Chinese culture uh, put the surname first. And it's actually one of the things, if you watch you know, a lot of uh, Japanese-related products, they all refer to each other by their surname. Your good friends refer to you by your first name. Uh, but it, it's a very kind of uh, personal relationship you have with if you go first name instead of purely surname. So I know that for a lot of them, I I did some research on this actually because it was annoying me. Like I don't know which of those names for Dana Batkari is appropriate because I, I refer to fighters by their surname when covering them as a matter of professional respect and courtesy because I don't know any of them. I'm not going to even imply familiarity by using the first name. So turns out, for a long time, Mongolians did not have family names. Everyone was just their first name. That was it. Uh, so I believe the current naming convention is you put your father's name first. Cause they changed this. Um, I forget when. This is a fairly recent change, uh, but they were like, uh, but Mongolians wanted, I guess they wanted to do it, or they, I don't know exactly why. I don't know the, I don't know the full story about how and why, but there was a bit where you could have, like, clan affiliations, this was way back in the day, mind you. But, uh, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily have family names the way that Western countries do, and even against other Eastern countries. You would just kind of have the one name. And... They've been changing that, but and I believe the way they've changed it now is you do you put the your father's name first and then your name second. So I don't know what the heck's going on with his name. Uh, so I apologize if I if anything if any of the ways I refer to him inadvertently come across as overly familiar. Uh, not at all what I'm attempting to do there. Uh, anyway, so Mahash the point being there, Mahashte goes only by Mahashte. Um, his his name I believe his first name or. If he chooses to only go by the one, I respect that. That's what I refer to him as. He is listed as uh, his first name being Hayasier. Hayasier? I forget. I don't know exactly how you pronounce that. Um, so forgive me if I'm butchering that. But yeah, he goes by. So he just goes by Mahashte. Uh, 
And then, yeah, and Silviano Gomez Juarez. So basically, get a finish, get a bonus tonight. Uh, which, I, dude, you could have given Prohachka fight of the night and a performance bonus. You should have. Um, but, yeah, that was kind of the, th that was kind of the theme here. Again, did a little bit dirty to Kulabau and Choi, who had a good fight, but sometimes you have a good fight, and on any other night, that might have been fight of the night. Unfortunately, not this one. Because this was a pay-per-view, we had our Crypto.com fan bonuses. This is a, I've said this before, this is a glorified popularity contest. That's all it is. That's absolutely all it is. Um, they closed the voting... I believe they closed the voting for this like before the main card happens. I have to double-check that, but like, it's not at all related to the outcome of the fight. It's just, hey, go vote for your favorite fighter. <sighs> anyway. So, because it's a glorified popularity contest, and because this was the card... Your first place winner was all the simps for Valentina Shevchenko. Second place, Yuri Prohachka. Third place, Zhang Weili. Um, you know what? I I don't like that it's just a popularity contest, for the record. I don't like that. I am not going to complain one iota about fighters being paid more, even if it's in Bitcoin. So... Again, from first to second place, that's 30,000, 20,000, and 10,000 US dollars in Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin is like, is the, I believe, like the only somewhat stable cryptocurrency. I'd still probably sell that <laughs> as fast as I could. I don't know, Bitcoin. I don't know enough about crypto market. Like, if this was anything other than Bitcoin, I would sell it immediately. Not, not a joke immediately they give you hey 30 grand in bitcoin sell now want cash want to be able to do something with it bitcoin might be worth hanging on to more uh, i think it's like i said i think it's the only one that's semi-stable but do not take financial advice from me on this that's my opinion as an unbearably ignorant layman about this market uh, consult people who actually know the financial systems if you want advice on that so Congratulations to those fighters for making more money. Good for you. You should be making a lot more. I almost don't... This is one of those things, like, I debated talking about today some of the stuff that Tim Kennedy said on the MMA Hour last week. Because he talked about the collapse of the mixed martial arts... How was it? The... It was the double M, triple A. It was kind of what you jokingly referred to it as. Like, the Mixed Martial Artists Something Association... Uh, but Tim Kennedy talked a little bit about why that fell apart. For those of you who may not remember this, this was a venture to try and get some kind of collective bargaining association for fighters in the UFC, and it had some pretty heavy hitters attached to it. Uh, the fighters that came out in support of it at the time, you had George St. Pierre, Cain Velasquez, Donald Cerrone, and TJ Dillashaw. Um... Cerrone and Dillashaw got pretty big pay bumps after just standing there in front of that particular organization, for the record. How, how labor is supposed... That's how unions are supposed to work. Because I'm very much a... Because I'm very much a kind of pro-free or market capitalist is my general worldview, doesn't mean I'm anti-union. Unions can be corrupt and abusive just as much as businesses can. That's true, deserves to be said. But unions are not a bad thing inherently. 
uh, when run ethically and legally, not always the same thing, but when run legally and ethically, they're a wonderful benefit, and they're a wonderful benefit to the labor force, and can strengthen the overall... Uh, there's a lot of benefits, especially to labor, to having a union present. I'm not anti-union. Just Again, I need to say that because I, I do kind of sing the praise of the UFC on occasion when I think they deserve it. Uh, but they, they tried to get this thing going. And it never did. And Tim Kennedy talked a little bit about why. He said everyone was afraid of reprisals from the UFC. And that should tell you something about, one, how petty and punitive the UFC can be, which is documented, by the way. Uh, there's a lot of people who will tell you a lot of stories about that, if you, if you just ask. Uh, but it's... Overcoming that fear is really hard. Especially when you... Here's one of the other things about kind of organizations like a union or an association or a collective bargaining agreement in a broad sense. MMA is a selfish sport, but that doesn't mean that... You know, collective bargaining like that does not mean everyone makes the same. The NFL has a collective bargain. They have a players association. Does a... Look, does the third-string linebacker for the Arizona Cardinals make as much as Tom Brady? No, of course not. But the NFL also has a competitive marketplace in the sense that there are individual teams that bid on the services of individual players. That does not exist in the MMA space. So there's... It's not a great one-to-one -one comparison, but there, there are appropriate parallels to be drawn. I mean, the, the one everyone kind of likes to bring up is, hey, but, you know, golf. Yeah, look how much golfers make. They make more than MMA than UFC fighters. <laughs> Hate to break it to you. Um, but he talked he talked a little bit about you know they would go to gyms say here's the benefits of the association we're attempting to put together here's what we're trying to do and most fighters were like yeah I think that all sounds great but I'm not putting my name to anything lest the UFC get wind of it and I become penalized I'm not you know you have a short window for financial success in MMA, and a lot of people even in the UFC struggle with financial success. I've made it to the place that offers me the biggest money-making opportunity, and I do believe that's still the UFC, mind you. I've made that case before. And I don't want to rock this boat. Because if I do, I might insert the Tiger King meme here, I'm never going to financially recover from this. That's a very real fear. That's a very real difficult thing to overcome, especially because the kind of culture of the UFC and of MMA in general, it's not just a UFC problem. It kind of perpetuates that, right? Um, it's a weird thing to I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was young, growing up, my, de uh, my father was big into scouting, the Boy Scouts of America. So, and partially because of my religious affiliation, uh, I did a lot of scouting when I was, you know, at scouting age, like 11 through 16. I was in Cub Scouts before that, but, you know, Cub Scouts are a little bit weirder. They're just different. They're much younger. But when I became 11, I started scouting. I never got my Eagle Scout, actually. Variety of reasons. 
But I did a lot of that. A lot of camping, a lot of hiking. Been on a couple of different, several 50 milers, actually. I've done river trips. Like, I've done a lot of scouting. There are things in these kind of camping and scouting community that are just passed down within itself. Like, I guarantee you, every group in the anything approximate, not just even approximating a geographical relationship, but if there's a shared culture, and scouting is very much a shared culture, there are these kind of cultural things that just kind of pass down. Example, if you're sitting around the campfire and the smoke is coming at you, you have something you say and it, you know, is supposed to make the smoke go another direction. It's it's a silly little myth. It's something, you know, objectively, you know it's not true, but everybody does it anyway. Well, I wound up going, again, like, I would have been years out of scouting. Um, I stopped when I was 19. I actually, went, I actually went a little bit beyond my 18th birthday because I was involved with the Order of the Arrow, but it's a whole other thing. But I would have been almost 10 years out of scouting when I went on a it's an overnight trip with one of my brothers. It was a father's and son's thing, I think, and my dad was uh, not available to go, so I went with my one of my very younger brothers. I've mentioned this before. There's like a 12 or 13 year age gap between me and my like two youngest brothers. So I went with one of them on a again just like a father and it's an overnight thing. Uh, no, no, I mean, there wasn't even hiking. It was just, you know, hey, we'll go, we'll drive, you know, maybe very short hike to the campsite, camp out, have fun, like, you know, good, wholesome uh, activities. And these other, you know, 11-year-olds around the fire are doing the same thing. And again, I'm like nine years removed from being part of scouting. And it's still there kind of perpetuating itself. The culture in the UFC... And in MMA in general, breaking that culture around fighters is going to be really hard. Um, and, I mean, again, you had fighters go, like, again, gym to gym and some very well-known fighters. Yeah, Kenny was the other fighter attached to that. I don't know why I didn't list him earlier. And had people be sympathetic to your arguments, but fearful of the structure that they're trying to operate within. Uh, that's rough. Like, that's really rough. When a when a structure gets that rigid, that's when things break. Um, you know, the fun this is a weird thing, but go with me for just half a second on this little journey here. The difference between left and right is not just a political difference, right? In, in the sense that we think of it as political difference. Kind of the purpose of the left side of the argument is to make sure that structures and systems do not become oppressive. The purpose of the right is to make sure that structures and systems are still preserved and in place and functioning. And this is the fundamental tension between the two ideologies. And when they're working as they're supposed to work, the left, for the sake of argument, say labor, Make sure, wants to make sure and advocate for a system and a structure that is not oppressive and not tyrannical. And the right wants to make sure that it is not chaos, that there is still a system and a structure and a framework to work within. And ideally, you come together and you create something that works and you get tension one way or the other, etc., etc. 
if you're dealing with a structure that is as rigid as the UFC's is, again, they're dealing with some serious top-down mandates here. The UFC's always said we want to keep fighter pay below 20%. Because the UFC because management wants to keep the bulk of the profits, as management always does, hence what should be the speech between management and labor. When the UFC was sold, first of all, that was a big selling point. Like, hey, we have a great business model, we keep all the money. <laughs> uh, when they sold it, that was a big selling point. The UFC's profitability essentially amounts for, what was it, like 80% of the profitability portion of Endeavor. Most of what Endeavor owns does not make money. Now, I've mentioned this before. You can run businesses in the red successfully. You don't always have to be... You don't always necessarily have to be cash flow positive as a whole to have a successful Endeavor. It's... You want to be, don't get me wrong, you absolutely want to be, but in shorter terms or under certain circumstances, it's not, it's not always, it's not like, oh boy, we're in the red, we have to close. That's not how that works necessarily. You can be cash flow negative, but as long as there's enough cash flowing, you can still be operational. It's a little bit where Endeavor is, and the UFC's profitability makes up the vast majority of whatever profitability Endeavor has, because what they, again, the other things they own are not turning much of a profit. So the people that own the UFC are saying to the UFC, do not change this, and the UFC is saying, sure, and who's getting the short end of this particular stick? Well, it's the fighters. And yeah, you're just dealing with a very, very rigid structure in that particular respect that cultivates a culture of uh, weird loyalty to the company. Want to phrase it that way? Um, yeah, it's. I mean, you you get you get fear in a very real way. Like there's a bunch of fighters who seem content to try and suck up to the UFC. I don't necessarily mean that they're wholly ideologically opposed to some of what the UFC does, but they have nothing in writing, so they're beholden to the whims of management, which is capricious. And trying to break that culture is almost impossible. Um, it really makes you wonder what it's going to take to change the pay structure of the UFC. Because... If you're trying to fight to get a decent chunk, you don't need all of the members of the UFC roster to sign. But you need, I think, around 50%. So of the, call it 500 fighters, so you need 250. Again, give or take, I forget the exact number, so forgive me. But you need a chunk. You don't need all, but you need a chunk. It's between 50 and 30%. Again, the exact number doesn't really matter in this case, because... They didn't get close. Trying to break that culture is... Again, it's almost impossible. I think if anything's going to change in the UFC for the betterment of the fighters, you're going to be dealing with years of litigation. There is a lawsuit currently going on that might have an impact. Again, assuming... Depending on how it is litigated, and the litigation is going to take a while, because litigation does... Or you're going to have to do something like expand the Ali Act into MMA, which not a lot of people want, and there are reasons not a lot of people want that. I will say, 
expanding the Ali Act to MMA would get the fighters paid more. That's that's kind of the long and the short of that. There were there are other consequences that go along with it. It would it would pretty radically change the the structure of MMA, not just the UFC, but MMA as it currently exists. So, and that's a bell that you can't unring, by the way, because it well can't is a bit strong, but when you legislate that, you then have to legislate to change it. So. Anyway, that's a whole thing. Didn't mean to go on too big of a tangent there, but that was UFC 275. Darn good pay-per-view card. Uh, again, the only fight that kind of wasn't great was Shevchenko and Santos. Fight of the year contender. Knockout of the year contender. Uh, really good card. All right. Yeah, that was a long preview. Yeah, a long review. Knew it would be. I will try to speed things up through the rest of this so we're not here forever. UFC on ESPN 70... 70... 37... You've seen ESPN Plus is almost in the 70s. Uh, the, again, this event takes place in Austin, Texas. They'll be at the Moody Center June 18th. Some good fights here. Again, I'll preview quickly, but this is actually a good card, believe it or not. For a fight night, this is really solid. Main event, great main event. Calvin Cater and Josh Emmett. I don't know if you'll get the next title challenger out of this because I don't know what's going to happen with, Vol- with Alexander Volkanovsky and Max Holloway in their third fight. That's there's a lot about this division that hinges on the outcome of that fight and what happens after that fight. If Volkanovski wins and is serious about fighting for the lightweight belt, they might let him. Uh, which also which is a little bit pursuant to what happens at lightweight, because you've got Islam Makhachev coming up. He's got a fight, but you know if Volkanovski defends the belt again, beats beats Max Holloway a third time. And says he wants to try his hand at lightweight. Dude, Volkanovski and Oliveira would be a crazy fight. Just throwing it out there. So that might be, we don't know exactly, but your, I'll say your presumptive number one contender comes out of this fight. Pursuant to a few other things. I think especially if it's Emmett. If Emmett wins, I think he's your next guy. Now, you, can, you also have Yair Rodriguez, who's going to fight Brian Ortega. So featherweight, I shouldn't say presumptive. Potential. Could. Could come out of this fight. <laughs> Featherweight's great, man. You have an abundance of quality fighters. Um, I think I lean towards Emmett here. He's only lost twice in his career, only once at Featherweight when he was brutally knocked out by Jeremy Stevens. But, is Emmett's first five-round fight? I believe it is. So that's a bit of an unknown. We've seen Cater fight five rounds a couple of different times now. Yeah, yeah, when he got beat up by Max Holloway and then when he beat up Giga Chikadze. Emmett's got more power, but Cater's a much better striker. Emmett's wrestling could be a problem. Yeah, maybe I don't favor Emmett. Over three rounds, I would favor Emmett. I mean, let me preface it like that. Over three, I think I would lean towards Emmett. Over five? I might lean Cater. He's got good power himself. He's diligent. He's busy. He's smooth. He's there to be hit on occasion. Good footwork. The wrestling is going to be a big kind of question mark here. Cater hasn't fought a real dedicated wrestler in a while. Who was the last dedicated wrestler he fought? 
He hasn't fought one since he fought Zabit. Dang. I mean, look, Cater's UFC run is really good. He beat Andre Feely, beat Shane Burgos, lost to Hanato Maikano, beat Chris Fishgold, knocked out Ricardo, uh, Ricardo Lamas, lost to Zabit, knocked out Jeremy Stevens, brutal elbow, beats Danny Ige, loses to Max Holloway, beats Giga Chikadze. It's a really good run. But the last guy, time he fought a guy who was who would really kind of wrestle him was Zabit. Huh. I think there was some wrestling... Oh, three times. Yeah, the Ige fight was a main event. Ige wrestled him at times. Ige tried. Hmm. Yeah, I am going to favor Cater over five rounds. Might be wrong about that. It's a very, very good fight. Very good fight. Co-main event. Your old man fight of the card. Donald Cerrone and Joe Lozon. These two were supposed to fight at... Oh, what was it? UFC 274. Uh, they got moved to this card after Cerrone contracted food poisoning, which really sucks. Um, I favored, I think I favored Cerrone then. I think I still favor Cerrone. Like, this is just kind of going to be your fun old guy fight. Both guys should be seriously considering moving on from MMA at this point, though. Uh, welterweight, Kevin Holland and Tim Means. Ooh. Pretty good fight. I'm going to lean towards Holland, but that's a very slight lean. If Tim Means can make this ugly, get in close. Tim Means has ways to win this fight. Uh, middleweight, Joaquin Buckley and Albert Durayev. I feel like I should favor Buckley here, but let me check Durayev real fast. Uh, he's fought in the UFC before. I know the name. Let's have a look. Durayev is 15-3 and three overall. Yeah, he beat Roman Kopilov. He's on a long winning streak. Good grief. Whereas Buckley... Buckley's won his last two? That fight with Abdul Razak al-Hassan was close, though. It wasn't that close, but it was a split decision officially. Um, I'm going to favor Derive there, but... Might be wrong. That might be very speculative on my part. Lightweight, Demir Ismagulov and Guram Kutadeladze. Uh, I'm pretty high on Ismagulov, believe it or not. He's 4-0 in the UFC. He's on a 15-fight winning streak. He's 20-1. Yeah, I think he's. I think it's 15. I'm not going to count. It's 14 or 15. Yeah, 4-0 in the UFC. Pretty big step up for him. Uh, not actually all that big a step up, sorry. Um, Kuta Teladze is Georgian, a country, not the state. Some rather hilarious memory that came about from that particular distinction here in the United States the other day. Um, people not understanding the difference, and then further not understanding that Georgia is not Russia. <sighs> And Georgia has fought very hard not to be part of Russia. <laughs> uh, but geopolitics and conflict, I'm going to leave that one alone. That's a statement of fact. A lot of conflict between Georgia and Russia. Uh, Georgia defeated Mateus Gamrot in his UFC debut. It was two years ago. Almost two years ago. It was a tough fight. Was a, I remember that fight. That was a really tough fight. I favored Gamrot going in. That was Gamrot's first loss. 
He's had two fights canceled since then, both against Don Madge. Don Madge wound up out of the UFC. I think he had visa issues and just needed to fight and make money, so he got his release. Don Madge pretty awesome, by the way. Uh, had a loss in PFL recently, but Don Madge is good. Um, I'm going to favor Ismagulov, but that is a, is a very good fight. So, wait, is it is this winning streak longer? He's got 20 and one there and 23 and one there. Huh. I don't know if I can trust Tapology at the moment. They did have an issue with the. Oh, uh, what's his face? Morozov, a couple of weeks ago. I'll wait and see on that one. But good fight. It's a very good fight. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Julian Marquez will fight Gregory Rodriguez. This is going to be, and I mean this in the most affectionate way possible, you're going to get two big kind of meatheads punching the crap out of each other until one of them falls over. This is a very fan-friendly fight. Um, Marquez is on a two-fight winning streak. He had that really long layoff when he had serious injuries. Um... Yeah, what was it he... Because after the loss to Diki Rico, um, he had... What was it he... Uh, his shoulder, I think? Some kind of... It was, I think it was the lat, right? Yeah, he had some gnarly injury. Had have a couple of different... Uh, uh, surgeries on it. Like, he's lost a lot of time there, but... Uh, won his last two fights. Uh, Gregory Rodriguez. Isn't he Robocop? Yeah, it's a nickname, Robocop. Uh, he lost a split decision to Armin Petrosian his last time out. It was a good fight. Um, couple of just kind of knockdown drag-out affairs before that when he beat Dusko Todorovic and Junyon Park. I'm going to lean towards Marquez, but these two are going to go at it. This is this is gonna be this is gonna be your rock'em sock'em robots, I think. So that's the main card. As for the prelims, Adrian Yanez will fight Tony Kelly. Um, I think pretty highly of Yanez's upside. So uh, he's got some things to shore up, but he's a young guy. How young is he? I mean, he's got a fair number. Of, yeah, he's 28. Uh, got 18 fights. Um, he took a pretty big step up when he moved to the UFC. But he's uh, been rising to the occasion since. Uh, and Tony, I mean, Tony Kelly's no slouch either, for the record. Uh, two and one in the UFC, two fight winning streak. Um, he's undefeated. He's yeah undefeated since dropping to bantamweight, uh, two and zero. Oh. I'm gonna lean towards Yanez, but that's a pretty good fight. Uh, women's flyweight, Jimmy, uh, Jasmine Jessica Devisas and Natalia Silver, Silva, excuse me, not Silver. Um, I think I'm going to lean uh, Jessa Devisius. I mean, she yeah, she won a UFC debut. Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, welterweight Court McGee will fight Jeremiah Wells. I sentimentally always pick Court McGee. because I've told you guys this story a few different times here, but he came up uh, here in Utah in the regional Utah scene. And one of the local MMA promotions had a show once a week on local access television that I got with my rabbit ears at the time. I watched his first loss 
was his first couple of fights, but his first loss was he uh, fighting Jeremy Horn. Actually, had a good third round against Horn when they fought. So I've I've watched Court McGee a lot. I pick him. It's not all. It's very rarely. Uh, I don't mean this unkindly, but you know, it's not always the <laughs> intelligent selection as far as that goes. But I I pick him because I am somewhat sentimentally attached to him. Uh, he's a little bit up against it here. Jeremiah Wells is a pretty darn good fighter, actually. Um, he had a solid debut when he beat Worley Alves. He beat um, Adesanya's boy, Blood Diamond. So they're kind of trying to set up Wells here, but Court McGee is a, is a stiff test and then, uh, deserves to be noted. So rooting for Court McGee because, because I do. I have, look, I have my reasons for it. They don't have to make sense. <laughs> McGee's on a two-fight winning streak, actually, so, you know. Featherweight, uh, Ricardo Hamos and Danny Chavez. Uh, Mr. Chavez is 1-1-1 one, one, and one in the UFC. Um, lucky to get away with a draw in his last fight, actually. I mean, the point deduction to Kai Kamaka was warranted, absolutely, but absent the point deduction, he loses that fight. Probably go with Hamos here. He's been a bit up and down in the UFC, but... Yeah, going with Hamosh. Women's strawweight, Maria Oliveira and Gloria DePaula. I think it's DePaula, right? Paula's coming off her first UFC winner. She had to beat Diana Belbeach. She lost two before that. What is Oliveira? Oliveira is 12-5. and five. Lost a UFC debut. Flip a coin. I'll go with DePaula, sure. But, yeah, again, that's that's kind of a coin flip for me. Bantamweight, Eddie Wineland's still going strong. He'll fight Cody Stamen. Pretty easy pick of Cody Stamen. I respect Eddie Wineland, but I think he's a little bit over the hill. Uh, middleweight, Phil Hawes and Duran Wynn. Hawes coming off a loss to Chris Curtis. That was his first loss in the UFC, whereas Wynn... I believe... This isn't his UFC debut... Not, sorry, not, this isn't his middleweight debut. He's 2-2 two and two in the UFC. I'm going to go with Hawes, actually. Am I? No, I'm going to go with Wynn. If Wynn will wrestle, because uh, he, he hasn't, he's gotten away, he's a very good wrestler. If he sticks to wrestling here, I think he can win. Also, I'll go with Wynn, but eh. And kicking everything off, Roman Delitze and Kyle Dawkus. Delitze. Coming off of a win. Uh, Dawkus. Dawkus have been real up and down in the UFC. Um, coming off of a win, though. Hmm. Uh, sure, I think I'll pick Dawkus, but mm, that's a tough one. Uh, Dawkins needs to find his footing. He really does. Because, again, he's been really up and down. But hopefully he's found it now, so pick him. But again, that's a close fight. So this is a pretty solid card, actually. Uh, somewhat surprisingly so. We, we've kind of been conditioned over the last couple of years for these UFC fight nights to be a little bit eh. But, like I said, when they go on the road and they have to sell them rather than just have them at the apex... They tend to put forth more effort put in putting together better cards. So. 
I will cover that this Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, so please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate that. Thank you very, very much. All right. Let's do some news very briefly. All right. Um, the... Uh, what do we got here? Uh, Dana White wants to make Michael Chandler... Ver, uh, sorry. Kamaru Usman versus um, Leon Edwards. I have this incorrectly listed in my notes. We'll fix that. We have a date for their title fight. This will be Usman's whatever title defense. They will fight at UFC 278, which will take place just about an hour north from me in Salt Lake City. They will be at the, I believe, the Vivint Smart Home Arena. The Vivint Arena. I don't know if it's still the Vivint Smart Home Arena, but Vivint. Um, also on that card at the moment, the middleweight fight between Luke Rockhold and uh, Paulo Costa. Spaced on his name there for a minute. Um, good title fight. That's the correct title fight to make. Uh, yeah. So 278 starting to take shape. That will be in... We're going to get on that, actually. That's in August, right? I'll check. I'm pretty sure that's in August. Yeah, that's August 20th. So it is just the Vivint Arena now. Used to be the... Um, used to be the Delta Center for a long time. Uh, long time with the Delta Center. You don't care about the history of naming conventions for large buildings in, the <laughs> in my neck of the woods, but they better start filling that up. They're coming up on short time. I mean, we're almost just a month away from that, and at the moment, they have three fights announced for it. Again, Usman and Edwards, great main event. Rockhold and Costa, solid fight, and a flyweight fight between Victor Altamar uh, Altamariano and Jake Hadley. So they need to, I imagine, at... 276 is coming up July 2nd. I imagine that's when we'll get the big kind of announcement about 278 would be my guess. Uh, curse to me, if I had a laptop, which I do not, I could apply for press credentials to that. And I'd probably get turned down anyway. Uh, all right, so there's that. Let's see. Very quickly, um, Dana White wants to make Michael Chandler versus... Conor McGregor, sure. Uh, why not? I mean, I know why not, but that that's a perfectly fine fight to make, I guess. Dana's kind of trying to get Conor back in the conversation. Have you noticed this? The UFC is not nearly as beholden to pay-per-view sales as they have been in the past, but they do still like to have a good presence. And they've been kind of without... I mean, I hate to say they've been without a, transcend a transcendent star, because that's really unfair. But this UFC machine doesn't really like fighters getting big in a weird way. They want them to be popular, but they don't want them to be more popular than the UFC. So it's you know, it's just kind of a weird thing. Um, but they, they have been looking to kind of try and regain a little bit of their imprint on the pop culture. I'm not even going to say mainstream. The UFC is mainstream. Deal with it. You're not the underdog anymore. You haven't been for a long time. Either fans or the promotion itself. You are the bully. It's okay. But they're they're trying to get, you know, some of their bigger names back in action in the rotation a little bit. Um, I mean, you kept a couple of bigger names on ice for a while, in the form of both Dustin Poirier and Nate Diaz. I mean, Masvidal's got his legal problems, which complicates things, but 
yeah, that's that's all kind of a thing. So he's not making noise about what I think he thinks makes sense for Conor McGregor. So who knows? Uh, all right. There is this one's a little bit weird. Uh, Davis and Figueredo, the UFC flyweight champion, is not happy that there's an interim title fight in his division between Brandon Moreno and Kai Kara France, and he is threatening to leave the division. No one cares. <laughs> I hate to say it that way because I like Figueredo. I've enjoyed a lot of his fights. He's turned in some great ones. He's turned in some brutal finishes. No problem with the guy in that respect. But if he thinks threatening to leave the division is somehow... That's not, that is not a lever of power for him, right? If he wants to move up to bantamweight and... Flyweight's a tough cut for him. He's missed he's missed weight before. And in fact, in one, his first title fight, he missed weight when he fought Benavides for the vacant title. If he just doesn't want to make that cut anymore and wants to move up, fine. This would be, I suppose this is good, a public narrative justification as any other, but no one cares. You've already got two other top guys fighting for an interim belt. If he says, I'll leave the division, they'll just make that fight for the vacant belt and say, sure, go ahead, fight a bantamweight. Good luck to you. Um, like I said, if this is a if this is a kind of macho respect thing, I don't quite get it because this is what the UFC does and they have done for a while and will do in the future and you should know what you're getting into. If this is him trying to exercise a degree of autonomy within a borderline oppressive system, I don't blame the guy. But uh, the only thing you have that's going to really make you money is that belt, sir. Giving it up just puts you back at whatever your contracted money was before that. Uh, in theory, again, kind of, I kind of default to champions get whatever their graduated pay-per-view scale is. Uh, which is not always the case, but I, I default to assuming that. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But that's my assumption. And then you'd be moving. I mean, you'd be moving up to a division that is going to be hard for you, not not to win, because he's a good fighter. But I have a hard time seeing him making a lot of headway at at 135. Might be wrong about that, but that's just kind of my thought. You know, he's. He enjoys a size and strength advantage over most of flyweight that he would not over bantamweight. He might st he's got power, which would help, but power at bantamweight is not unco as uncommon as it is at flyweight. Um, just throwing that out there. So if you want, like I said, if he wants to move up, he should be able to. I wish him all the best. I, I don't have any grudge against the guy at all. So. Uh, We'll see how that plays out. He might just be kind of partially negotiating in public. That's a bit more my read on it. All right, that's the news. I kind of, again, I talked a little bit about the Tim Kennedy and uh, double M, triple A stuff uh, pursuant to UFC 275. So let me check Twitter for any breaking news that may or may not have happened. And if there's nothing else, we will do plugs and get out of here. All right. No MMA related stuff is broken. Some of using memes that have started to sprout up in the wake of UFC 275, though, so. Uh, Twitter is a vast cesspool and a hellhole, but, uh, people throw out some interesting stuff on occasion. <laughs> That'd be the way to close that metaphor. All right. As for my plugs this week, 
Let's see, last week, my usual spate of coverage, as well as a damn you Hollywood for Top Gun Maverick. Uh, the four of us that got together to talk about it were largely complimentary. That was myself, Mark Rydlitz, Jason Teasley, and David Wright. This week, Jurassic World Dominion, which is getting savaged by critics. Now, I have not seen it yet. I will see it before we review it. But this Tuesday, there will be a review for that. That will be uh, myself, Mark Radulich, Jason Teasley, and... I don't believe... Um, oh, yeah, Jason's wife. It's going to be on. She was on with us for... The Secrets of Dumbledore. <laughs> Not a good movie. But will be joining us again for that one. So tune in. We will talk about Jurassic World Dominion, the good, the bad, the otherwise. So, Other than that, my usual spate of professional wrestling coverage. AW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW stuff on Thursday. WWE SmackDown on Friday. The UFC on Saturday. And next week, on the 19th, I will be covering Impact Wrestling's Slammiversary. Uh, apparently the normal guy... Couldn't make it, so I will be covering that on Sunday. Should be a decent enough time, I guess. Uh, and of course, Sunday also, we will be back here to have another podcast. We will review UFC on ESPN 37, and we will preview UFC on ESPN 38. Uh, we don't have a full bout order for this finalized yet, but your... I think we're... You haven't had this finalized yet. All right. Better announce that this week, guys. Um, the expected main event... Uh, the main event is Armin Saryukian and Mateus Gamrot. Darn good fight. Also on that fight, again, a lot of these do not have bout orders, so I'm just going to read through what we have announced, and we'll make of that what we will by the time it's... by next week. Uh, Chris Curtis and Adolfo Vieira. Uh, Tiago Moises and Christos Yago, Shyla Nerdunbeki and TJ Brown. Harley and Piva and Sergei Morozov. That's not a bad fight. Carlos Ulberg and Tafan Nchukwi. Chukwi? I forget. I forget how his name is pronounced. I apologize. It all, however I think it's supposed to be pronounced, it is never... I'm never correct. So, I think it's Chukwi. Um, that is going to be weird. It's going to be a weird fight. Call on that now. That's your weird fight of the evening. Uh, Jin Yu Fry and Vanessa Demopoulos, Tim Elliott and Amir Albazi, Josh Parisian, Alan Badeau, Neil Magny, Shavkat Rachmanov, great fight. Tyson Nam and Tiger Ulanbekov, not a bad fight. Umar Nurmagomedov and Nate Manis, good fight. JP Buys, Cody Durden, and Mario Bautista and Brian Kelleher. Nice to see Brian Boom Kelleher back. So we'll have a full preview of that next week. Until then, I thank you all again very, very much for listening. Stay safe out there as always and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.